Well, we come to our time of communion, and uh, this last week was interesting. I mean, whether you think uh, the snow is a, a blessing or a curse, that's for everyone to decide. Uh, I have my own opinion, and I can share that with you later. But uh, one thing I think we can all agree on is snow forces us to slow down in a very real way in a couple different ways. If you're driving and you get, you're going fast in the snow, uh, you're going to have a hard time when you have to stop. Like, that's just, that's just fact. Uh, but also with snow days at the schools and stuff like that, it also forces us to, we're going to have to slow down there too. And uh, it's always good when you slow down and it you, makes you appreciate when things are going smooth. Um, or if you don't like the snow, it makes you appreciate when the days are nice and the, and the good weather we have had. And it's always those times when, uh, I don't know, I witnessed this this last week when people tried to still move 100 miles an hour. And it doesn't work in the snow. It, it really doesn't. Um, so I always appreciate the fact that it forces us to slow down. And it reminds us to be patient. It, and if that's a struggle, it's a reminder that you need to work on patience. And uh, at communion time, I think that is something that we should definitely learn from Jesus because in a very real sense, he was always patient with us. First Timothy, Paul writes in, in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, I thank Christ, Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him. Even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ in my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that when Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners, then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. The idea that Christ is the prime example of patience because of his great mercy with us. Sinners saved through his blood, through his sacrifice, through his willingness to give his life. I mean, that is why we come here on Sundays. And that's why we come to this time to take the offerings of bread and juice to remember that sacrifice. Remember that we are patient because he was first patient with us. And even though the weather, the storms may rage and it forces us to slow down, it's still a good time to stop and remember who God is. And at the very least, that is a blessing. So as we take some time now during the service to stop and remember who God is, I pray we remember who he is to us and what he's done for us. So I'm going to pray, and then you are welcome to visit the tables around the room and take the emblems and take some time to remember who God is. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, you are so good. Uh, Lord, uh, even in the craziestness, craziness of life, you are, you are active and you are moving. And Lord, thank you so much for opportunities to slow down, to be patient, to remember who you are. Lord, at this time, I pray that we take some time and remember what you've done, what it means, and uh, how we can never pay it back. Lord, thank you so much for your son. Thank you so much for the sacrifice Jesus made. Lord, I pray we will never forget it. And I pray each and every day we'll remember what it means. In your son's name I pray. Amen.
believe it, it is February, and it just seemed like Christmas was a few weeks ago, and here we are, it is February. And not only is it February, but we are quickly approaching the end of our study in the book of Acts. We are only a a few weeks away from being finished with the book of Acts, but before we get to the end, we still have a lot of things to learn uh, from the life of the early church, uh, specifically Paul. Uh, we still got a lot of Paul left uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, if you have your Bibles open to Acts 24, Acts chapter 24, you can follow along on U version. And while you're turning to Acts 24, uh, just kind of want to. Uh, go back to last week where we were. We were in Acts chapter 23, and Cody did a good job of leading us through Acts chapter 23, and kind of a a chaotic chapter. I mean, we start with the fact that, you know, he's before the Sanhedrin, and then there's a plot to kill Paul, and then Paul gets uh, transferred over to Caesarea, just kind of a whirlwind thing. And since Acts chapter uh, 21, Paul is just being swept in and out of all of these crazy things that are taking place, and he's going before uh, religious leaders, he's going in front of uh, political leaders, he's just bouncing all over the place. And the thing that's so amazing about Paul's life in the book of Acts is, you know, Cody talked about this last week, that even in the midst of the bad, God can do good things. And you know, I, I imagine Paul is probably thinking, like, there has to be an easier way to get me from where I'm at to where you want me to be. It's just one thing after another. But what's funny is, as they're, you know, bouncing Paul around from place to place, from ruler to authority to ruler to authority, they're trying to get rid of this man, and yet God is using this man in all of these situations uh, to present his gospel. And he's taken these bad things that are happening, he's using them for good. And that leads us into uh, chapter 24, and it's another case where Paul is going to be on trial. And and what's really interesting is, you know, I've, I've heard people say in the past, too, why are these trials in the book of Acts? Why did Luke include these? And MacArthur points out, and I think he's right on, like, you could have easily just said, and Paul was before this guy, and Paul was before this guy, and move on. But there's a reason why Luke points these out. And I think the reason for that is because he wants people to see what the church was going through. This was seen as a religious treason that these people were preaching. These apostles were teaching and preaching. The people thought these, this was religious treason. And you're seeing the, the claims that are being made against them, and you're seeing how they have to defend their faith, they have to defend their beliefs, they have to share the reason why they're doing these things to these people. And I think it's an amazing thing that as we read through these trials, we can learn a lot, we can grow a lot through these things that are being said. In particular, this one this morning. I think there's a lot of things that we see in this trial before Felix that we can take and that we can learn. And some of them are are hard truths, and some of them are things that uh, we should be doing daily. Sometimes we just forget. And so we are going to start in 24, uh, verse 1, and we're going to read the first uh, four verses here. And it says, Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. And so we see the high priest and some of the elders come down uh, to Caesarea, and they've brought a lawyer with them named Tertullus. And we uh, see that they're coming with the purpose to bring their charges against Paul. These are the issues we have found. These are the things that need to be dealt with. And so they hired this lawyer 
uh, to come with them. And not much is known about this lawyer. Uh, some people believe he was a Jew. Some people believe he was a Roman. Nobody's really sure who he was. The likelihood, though, of the reason why they picked him is because he would have been knowledgeable in both Jewish and Roman law. The Sanhedrin, if they were going to be dealing with the Romans, they needed to have some kind of understanding of Roman law. And so what they would do is they would hire a lawyer, keep them under their pay so that when an instance rose where they needed to, pre or needed to present charges in a Roman court, they would have a lawyer who would understand Roman law. And so they bring this uh, lawyer with them, and he is going to speak up to Felix. And he starts by doing something kind of smart. He starts by buttering up the governor. If you want somebody to hear your case, if you want somebody to uh, back you, what's the best thing to do? Butter them up, right? Like, tell them all the things that they want to hear. Make them sound like they are the most important person. That way, hey, these people are speaking truth. I need to listen to this. Uh, and so he starts by saying, hey, Felix, we've enjoyed a long period of peace under you. Your foresight has brought about reforms everywhere and in every way. Most excellent, Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. They're buttering this man up. They want this man to hear their case. So we need to understand a little bit about Felix. If we're going to talk about Felix, we need to know who Felix was. Felix was born and raised a slave in Caesar's house. He was freed by the mother of Claudius, Antonia. His brother, uh, Paulus, was a favorite advisor to Emperor Claudius. This is important because when this man wants to become governor, it helps to have a brother who uh, is standing before the emperor and is a, you know, hey, maybe you should consider this person uh, they would be good in this role. And so uh, it helped having this uh, advisor to the emperor. And eventually he would become governor in Judea in 52 AD. His reign would go from 52 AD to 59. And here's the thing we need to understand. The Jews were in fact buttering this man up because everything they said about Felix was a lie. Felix was not a good man. Felix was not a keeper of peace. A matter of fact, uh, in his reign as governor, insurrections and anarchy increased every year under his authority. Uh, Tacitus, who was a scholar at the time, made this comment. He said he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. Now that he had this power and this authority, he was thinking back to when he was a slave. He rules like he was a former slave, but now he has all these things that he never had while he was a slave. The power, the lust, all of these things. He was not a good man, but they're buttering him up. Uh, here are our charges. Please listen to us. Uh, I would request that you would hear us. And then from here... They are going to lay out their charges against Paul. And so they start in verse 5. And it says, We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. And so they come in, and they are going to lay out three charges against Paul. And all three of these charges are, are pretty important politically. Uh, the first charge he lays down is that he's stirring up riots. This is the same man who he's going all over the world. He's, he's going before the Jews, and he's stirring up riots, and he's stirring up chaos, and all these things are happening. This is an important charge because Rome was all about keeping things quiet. Rome was all about keeping the peace. They didn't want any uh, chaos. They didn't want any anarchy. They didn't want any riots. They wanted to keep the peace. And so if there's somebody who is going around stirring things up, the Romans would want to put an end to that. They wanted order. They didn't want chaos. 
The second point they bring up, the second charge, is that he is the leader of a Nazarene sect. And it's interesting they use the word Nazarene here. This is the only time in Scripture we see Christians referred to as the Nazarenes that tie to Jesus of Nazareth. But this is an important charge they bring up too because Judaism at this time was permitted as a religio licita, or licita. And what that is in, in English, you know, what in the world is that? It is a legal religion. It's a legal religion. Judaism was one of the few religions that was considered as legal by the Roman Empire. Now, here's the issue with that. If this man is going around with being the ringleader for a sect that isn't Judaism, then the Romans wouldn't want to have anything to do with that. They had to be permitted as a legal religion. And they didn't want all these new religions coming in. And so they had to have approval to become a religion. And so this man is stirring up people and he's starting this new belief system is what they were saying. Then thirdly, they bring the charge that he tried to desecrate the temple. If you recall in Acts chapter 21, they said that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple named Trophimus. And, and, you know, that was the thing that they used to stir up the people. Oh, he's defiled the temple. He brought this Gentile in. We know that this wasn't the case. But now their story changes. Their story has changed from Acts 21 to here. Because in Acts chapter 21, they said that he brought somebody in. In Acts chapter 24, they said that they stopped him from bringing him in. He wasn't able to get into the temple before they stopped him. And something uh, interesting to note, your Bible may have it in a footnote uh, on the very bottom, uh, verses 6 through 8, it makes it sound like, hey, we tried to try this man ourselves under our law, but Lysias came in and took him from him, uh, us with much violence, ordering his accusers to come before you. This is not the case at all. They were trying to make it sound like Lysias came in with violence and took this man before we had a chance to, to try him. And we know that's not the case because what did they try to do? They tried to kill Paul. And if it wasn't for Lysias, they would have killed Paul. And so these are the charges that they have brought against him. And they ask Felix, please examine him and you will see that these charges that we are bringing against him are true. They were hoping that Felix would talk to him himself, and he would see, okay, this person is as guilty as they say he is, and let's do something about it. And I think there's something very interesting for us to look at in these first nine verses, and it's a sad reminder, but I think it's true, is that we need to be prepared because hate will come. Hate will come. The truth is this, if you are doing what God asks you to do, if you are living the life that God calls you to live, if you are speaking the truth that God calls you to speak, there are going to be some people who do not want to hear what you have to say, and there are people who will hate you for what you believe. It's true. You see it all over the place. There have been times where people have been disowned by family members or friends because of what you believe. When you believe something that goes against their way of life, there's an opportunity for them to hate on you because you're telling them to do something different than how they live, by how they act, the, the things that are important to them. You're saying, hey, these things, man, that, that's not what Scripture says, and they will hate you for it. You know, Cody talked last week about don't be shocked when division comes. Don't be shocked when hatred comes. It's a thing. Sometimes people will hate you because of what you choose to believe, how you choose to live your life. And you see, here's the case here that, that Paul, the other apostles, the Jews, they did not just dislike these apostles. They hated these apostles because what they were teaching, what they were preaching, they were jealous of them. They were angry at them because they had more followers than them. They were just they, they did not like them so much, in fact, that they tried to have them killed over and over and over again. Don't be shocked when the way you live your life introduces hatred. 
and we see it today. The world likes to heap insults, just like these Jews would heap insults on the apostles, right? They, they would heap lies on them. The same things happen today. I hear it all the time. The church hates everybody who believes in this. The church hates all of these people. The church is just awful because they hate, 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 hate. That's all the church does is hate. Sad truth is, many Christians have not helped with that argument but that is something that we hear often the church hates 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 and the truth is when you stand against sin the world will hate you for that because you're going against the things that they value john 15 verse 18 reminds us of this if the world hates you keep in mind that it hated me first matthew chapter 10 verse 22 you will be hated by everyone because of me but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved don't be shocked when hate comes because of how you choose to live your life, how you believe in Jesus. That will follow sometimes, sadly. So the Jews have laid out their charges, and now it's Paul's opportunity to defend himself here. And that comes in verse 10. It says, When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges that they are making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And so here we see that Paul is going to stand before Felix and he is going to give his uh, defense of these claims that have been made against him. And so he's going to start with argument number one, which is the reason why he came to Jerusalem. They said that he was stirring things up all around the world and that he came to Jerusalem and he was stirring things up. And so how is he going to defend himself here? Well, he starts by bringing up the fact that he wasn't really there long enough to cause any issues. He says that he was there for 12 days and he was there to worship. 12 days. Now, there's a little bit of a conundrum here with Paul's words, 12 days, because if you think about it, seven days were spent in Jerusalem, uh, cleansing in the temple as part of the, Nez or the Nazarene vow that these people had made. Remember, the church at Jerusalem encouraged him to go and pay for their, uh, you know, their sacrifice and uh, to be in a part of their cleansing ritual for those seven days. And so there was seven days of that and five days spent in Caesarea. So these would be the 12 days. But if you recall, he was in Jerusalem. And then the next day in Jerusalem, he spoke to James and the elders at the church in Jerusalem. And then seven days and then five. So how do we rectify this as far as his 12 days? Well, the most likely when he says 12 days, we see day one would have been his arrival in Jerusalem. Day two would have been his uh, meeting his visit with James. Days three through nine would have been his purification days, with nine being the attack on Paul. The tenth day would be his day before the Sanhedrin. His eleventh day is the plot against Paul. And then the twelfth day is Paul being transferred to Caesarea. And this is important uh, for two reasons. First of all, uh, he shares this defense because he was never in Jerusalem to share the gospel, to evangelize to the Jews. That wasn't his purpose in going to Jerusalem. His purpose in going to Jerusalem was to worship. And a matter of fact, it's in, in a weird, he kind of had a pact with the church at Jerusalem that when he was in Jerusalem, he wouldn't evangelize to the Jews. This actually comes to us from Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. It says, On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. 
So, while Paul is in Jerusalem, his task would be to talk to those who were Gentiles. It was up to Peter, James, John, the church there, to be the ones who evangelized to the Jews. And so, he's not going to Jerusalem to evangelize to the Jews. He's going to worship. Then, he tells them that he would not have been there long enough to gain a following to cause that big of an uproar. For him to go into Jerusalem and in 12 days get everybody so stirred up and riled up that they would follow him and cause chaos and all these things, it would be hard. It would be impossible for him to get that much of a following in 12 days. Think about the other places that he had been where these things had gotten stirred up. Look at Ephesus. He wasn't in Ephesus for just 12 days. He was in Ephesus for years years. That's opportunity to build up followers. These places where he would go and spend years, those were the places he could stir people up. It wasn't in 12 days in Jerusalem that this was going to be a thing. And so that's how he, ar- or how he answers the first argument. I wasn't there to, to preach. I was there to worship, and I was only there for a few days, not enough time to stir people up. So he moves into his second argument. He turns to the argument of him being the leader of this sect of the Nazarenes. So he says here that uh, they cannot, or however I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. And then he tells him, I believe in everything that they believe in. I believe in the same God, the same Father. I believe uh, in the Old Testament. I believe in the law and the prophets. I believe in exactly the same things that they believe in. A matter of fact, I think the reason he mentions this is to say that he believes more so in the Old Testament than them, because if they actually believed in the law and the prophets, then they would see that Jesus was really the manifestation of what the Old Testament was pointing to. At its core, Judaism is the fulfillment of Christianity. Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, is what it is. Judaism is the Old Testament law pointing to this Messiah who would come, who is Jesus, the Son of God. And that's what Paul keeps telling them. I believe in the same thing, except as a follower of the way, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is the the one common denominator between Judaism and Christianity. It's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy saying that this man would come. And so he says, I believe in the way, I believe as a follower of the way, the same God that they believe in, the same Father that they believe in. And then he says, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. There will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. This is something different than usual for Paul. When Paul talks about resurrection, usually he only talks about the resurrection of those who are believers, that a time will come and they will be resurrected from this life and if they believe. Here we see him talking about both believers and non-believers the righteous and the wicked. And this is something that we do see in Scripture. In John chapter 5, 28 through 29, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15 tells us this, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the lake of fire and the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire." So Paul is talking about, I believe, in a time of resurrection for both the righteous and the wicked, a resurrection to life for those who believe, a resurrection of judgment for those who didn't. And he ends this part by saying, so I strive to always keep my conscience clear before God and man. This word clear here is translated as not causing to stumble or not offend. I strive to keep my mind clear as to I will not stumble, I will not offend. And so that's how he answers the first two charges. Now he's going to answer the third charge in verse 17. It says, After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor, 
and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. And so he's going to answer this third claim that he uh, was desecrating the temple. And he tells him, well, no, first of all, I didn't come with that intention. I came in to bring gifts and offerings. And then he tells him, guess what? I was ceremonially unclean. If he's in here as part of these purification rites of this vow that he had joined in on, he would be clean in the temple. He was ceremonially clean. This has nothing to do with desecrating the temple if he is in the temple clean. This argument makes no sense. And, and he points out the fact that there just happens to be one thing that makes your arguments invalid. Where are the people bringing this claim against me? Let's talk to them. Where are they? Oh, wait, that's right. They're not here. They're nowhere to be found. This is important because if they are not there to give their argument, then it means that they really have no case against Paul in this regard because the people who make the claim aren't there to say, hey, this is what we saw. They're not there. So Paul, being an intelligent man as he is, says, where are they? They're not here to bring their charge against me. And I think if you know, you're this lawyer that has been hired by the Sanhedrin, wouldn't you want these people with you when you made that claim? You would think, right? But I think they realized we really don't have a case in this regard, so why ask them to come? And so here's a thing I think that we can learn from Paul here. Notice what Paul does. He, he speaks the truth. Paul speaks the truth. And that's the same thing that we need to do. We need to speak the truth. The, the counteractive thing to do when people are spreading lies or, or falsities about us, it's up to us to stand up and to speak the truth. We need to speak the truth, the truth that comes to us from God's Word. The truth that we know to be true is in God's Word. We need to speak up and share the truth. We're told this in Scripture, Proverbs 12, 17, an honest witness tells the truth, but a false witness tells lies. When somebody is being a false witness, it's up to us to be a witness who is honest and speak the truth. Zechariah 8, 16 tells us this, these are the things you are to do, speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. We are to speak the truth to each other. But here's the key. All right, I want to be very clear on this. Here's the key. When it comes to speaking the truth, we must do so with love. We must do so with love. When we speak the truth to somebody, notice here, when Paul speaks the truth to the people, he doesn't do it as a jerk. He's not doing it just to be like, oh, all these people are stupid. Listen to what I have to say. No, he doesn't do that. He speaks the truth with respect and he does it in a way that shows grace. He's not just bad-mouthing everybody. He's speaking the truth with respect. And we are called to do the same thing when we speak the truth. Ephesians 4.15 tells us this. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. And I know it's easy sometimes when people say something about you and you want to speak up and you are ready to be angry and you are ready to say thing, the first thing that comes to your mind. But we need to remember when we speak the truth, we need to do so as people who speak the truth in love with respect. It's easier to share with somebody when we're not acting like a jerk. It's easier to, for somebody to listen when we're not just being angry or, or cursing at somebody. It's easier when we speak the truth in love with grace and respect. And so that's what Paul did. Paul spoke the truth. He spoke respectfully. And we had the same responsibility to speak the truth. And so we've seen the charges against Paul. We've seen Paul's defense. And now we are going to see Paul before Felix. And this is actually, I'll, I'll be very honest, this is one of my favorite scriptures in all of the book of Acts, because it's just amazing what takes place in these verses. In verse 22, it says, Then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, 
adjourn the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. And so he's given his defense, and Felix uh, tells him, hey, when Lysias comes, I'll decide your case then. He orders Paul to be kept under guard, but he gives him freedom. He, he gives him some freedom, and he allows his friends to come in and care for him, provide the things he needs. Uh, this was most likely because of the fact that he was a Roman citizen. Uh, if it wasn't a Roman citizen, he may not have gotten the same freedom that Paul is given here. But we see that several days later, uh, Felix comes with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Now, this is really interesting here, uh, the fact that he brings his wife, Drusilla. He wants to hear more about what Paul has to say, and he brings his wife, Drusilla, and Drusilla, it says, was Jewish. And not only was she Jewish, she had quite the lineage. She was actually the daughter of Herod Agrippa I and sister of Agrippa the second, and she has had some experience in dealing with the way. And, and I never really put two and two together until I was reading this week. She's got quite an interesting lineage, as Warren Wiersbe points out. Her great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2. Her great-uncle killed John the Baptist and mocked Jesus in Luke chapter 23. And in Acts chapter 12, we find out that her father killed the apostle James right? Like quite a lineage that this lady has, uh, you know, especially in dealing with the way. And so, uh, he asked him to come and, and share, and we see, we don't get to see exactly what Paul says, but we get Paul's outline, and it's a good outline. He talks to them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And as he's sharing this message, we see that Felix becomes afraid and says, that's enough for now. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. And we see that he'll bring him back other times to speak with him. And he was hoping that maybe Paul would bribe him and, and okay, uh, you can pay me off and I'll let you go. But Paul uh, never did that. And two years passes and uh, Felix is succeeded by Festus. And Felix wants to grant a favor to the Jews, and so he leaves Paul in prison. He leaves Paul in prison. But what I want to do for a moment here is I want to talk about his message. Again, we don't see what is said between Paul and Festus, or, uh, Felix. We don't see what Paul says to them, but we, again, we get his outline. He talks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. What's so amazing about this, and you might have heard this saying in the past, context is key. Context is key. When you are doing anything, context of something is key. When you're listening to a story, the context of the story is key. When you're, uh, you're reading scripture, context is key. If you just grab verses out of here and there and don't have context for them, you know, that's taking advantage of, of God's Word to fit your point. Context is key, but not only is context key when we're reading, context is key when you look at the situation in which Paul finds himself in. Because if you just read these words in itself, you think, wow, he, he must have said something pretty crazy, and that scared Felix. Why do we, why do we not, why did Luke include this? Well, it helps when we understand the fact that Paul understood who he was talking to. We see at the beginning of this, Paul makes the statement, uh, hey, you have been here for a number of years, so you can, uh, you can make a right judgment. Paul knew who Felix was, and if Paul knew who Felix was, it was likely that Paul understood who Felix really was and the, the things that he was doing that were not good. And not just him, 
but also his wife. So let's dig in for a second into the context of this. So he starts out by talking about the fact that, or he starts out by talking about righteousness. We've already talked about the fact that Felix was not a good man. Felix was not a good man. Uh, insurrection, riots were increasing uh, in his time. Uh, he was not that noble of a man. Drusilla herself was not that noble of a woman. She was, in, she was drawn to Felix because of his ruthlessness, the power that he had. Uh, she saw Felix as an opportunity to gain power, to gain influence. And so everything was just kind of wrong motivation. Felix wasn't a good guy. Drusilla really wasn't that good of a person. She was a Jew, but was she really a follower, a devout Jew? Then Paul talks about self-control. Self-control, and this is where things get really interesting here. Uh, Drusilla was not his first wife. Drusilla was not his second wife. Drusilla was his third wife. Each of these ending for, let's just be honest, these political leaders at this time were not the most faithful of people. And uh, what's interesting, a matter of fact, with Felix, this might not have been his first wife, but this was his second Drusilla. He married two women with the same name with a princess in between. Uh, we don't know her name, but we see that he marries one Drusilla, marries somebody else, then marries another Drusilla. How he marries this woman is quite interesting. She was married to somebody else at the time, and he saw this woman and he wanted to be with her. She liked Felix's power and uh, ruthlessness. She wanted him. And so with the help of a magician, Felix goes to her. This magician's name was Adamos. And she goes with Adamos to, or he goes with Adamos to, Fel or to this woman, Drusilla, and persuades her to leave her husband for him. And so she goes with him, saw the opportunity, sees the opportunity for power, for fame. And so she says, all right, fine, I'll leave him and I'll go with you. So he calls out their righteousness and he calls out their self-control. When you understand their lack of self-control, it's almost as if Paul understood who it was he was talking to. Then he ends up by talking about the judgment to come. We both know you struggle with righteousness. We both know you struggle with self-control. And guess what? A time is coming when you will have to stand before God and you will have to give an account for the reasons you did the things that you did. Coming judgment. This, it, when I was reading this, as a matter of fact, when I was typing this out, when I was reading through this and studying this, uh, you know, we, I was typing upstairs in our house, and I, I got so excited reading the context of it, weird as it may sound, and I ran downstairs, and I was telling Kay, like, oh my gosh, Kay, you got to listen to this. This is so crazy. This is so interesting, because Paul knew so well who he was talking to. He framed his message, his points around who he was talking to. Context is key to understand why Paul was saying the things he was saying, even though we don't see what he was saying, we see his outline, and his outline was geared to somebody who knew who he was talking to. Is it any wonder why Felix becomes scared? Is it any wonder why when Paul is saying these things, Felix becomes scared because he is pointing right at him? These are all these things that you are doing wrong. And guess what? One day you will have to stand judgment before God. I, I, that just boggled my mind, just how smart Paul was to know context. And I, I've said it before, it's important to understand the culture in which you live. If you want to be able to share the gospel with people, understand the culture in which you live. Don't become part of the culture in which you live, but understand the culture in which you live. And you see, here's the thing that stands out to me from Paul here. Notice what Paul does. He makes the most of every opportunity. Paul makes the most out of every opportunity he is given. And as we mentioned earlier, God takes the bad and he uses it for good. And it's especially the case here with Paul because 
Paul is probably thinking, man, there has got to be some other way to get me from here to here. But as he's going from here to here to here, being bounced all around, he makes the most of every opportunity he is given to speak to the people that he is speaking to. And he was promised, you are going to speak to Gentiles, you're going to speak to Jews, but you're also going to speak to authorities, you're going to speak to uh, leaders, you're going to speak to all of these people, and God is doing that, weaving this story for Paul to make the most of his opportunities. And this is the same thing for us. We must make the most of our opportunities. We must make the most of our opportunities to share the gospel with the people around us. And I don't know if you've ever heard this. You might be guilty of saying this. I've never had the opportunity to share. I've never had the opportunity. God's never opened the door. God's never given me the opportunity to speak with somebody. God's, I've never had the opportunity. The question I would ask is this. Have you never had the opportunity or did you never make the most of the opportunity? And I say that as somebody who myself has missed the opportunities. I'm guilty of it, and I I admit it fully. There have been times when I was working in retail, when I had so many opportunities to share with my coworkers why I believe the things I believe, why I do the things I do. When people would ask me, man, you don't don't gossip like these other people. Why, Why don't you do that? And I never took the opportunity to share why. I just kind of move on and get back to work. I had opportunities with people outside of work. Man, I'm struggling with this. Never took the opportunity to share. Is it the fact that we don't have opportunity or do we just fail to make the most of the opportunities that we have? I think more often than not, the sad truth is, is we know we have the opportunities, we just choose not to out of fear, out of what will people think, what will people say, how will people challenge me, how will people push back if I share It's just all these different things keeping us from making the most of our opportunity. And Paul is standing before the governor and he makes the most of his opportunity knowing who this man is. You want me to share what I believe? All right, I'm going to share what I believe and I'm going to share it and it's going to match exactly what it is that you are struggling with and that you need to hear. He made the most of every opportunity and we need to make the most of our opportunity. 2 Timothy 4.2 tells us this, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, every season, be prepared, be ready so that when that opportunity is there, you don't miss it. You don't miss it. And I love how he says with great patience because sometimes in order to have that opportunity, it's going to take time to build a relationship. Sometimes it's going to take time to build a relationship with somebody to be able to share with them. But we need to be ready when that time comes. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Be prepared at all times to give the reason for why you believe what you believe. At all times, whatever the season, whatever is happening, be prepared, be ready, so that when somebody asks, why do you believe this, why do you do this, you can give the answer. Make the most of the opportunities that you are given, and I guarantee you probably have more opportunities than you think you do. It may just not, you know, it it may not be the right time. It may not be the right time. Make the most of the opportunities that you're given. And here's the sad truth. Felix goes away looking for a bribe, afraid of what Paul had to say. We never see if he repents. It's probably likely that he didn't. And he ultimately chose not to believe here. And the sad truth is, there are going to be those who just choose not to believe. There are going to be those who choose not to believe what you have to say. There are going to be those who choose not to listen to your words. There are going to be people who choose not to believe the same things that you do. But that doesn't mean that we stop trying. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they do, 
Are we speaking the truth? At all times, speaking the truth, we have truth in our hands. We have truth now pretty much anywhere you go. If you have a phone, you have truth with you on your phone. You can pull out God's word no matter where you are, or no matter where you are at, and you can speak truth. And you can make the most of the opportunities that you've been given. When you're having long conversations with family, with friends, maybe it's time for you to bring up the topic. And if they don't want to hear it, okay. Maybe later they'll want to hear it. Maybe uh, a week later, two weeks later, hey, I've been going through this. I remember what you were saying. Can we talk about this? Make the most of the opportunities that you've been given. Or maybe this morning you're here and the opportunity you've been missing is an opportunity to connect with God. That was the, you know, Paul made the most of every opportunity he had. Felix missed the opportunity that he had. And don't miss the opportunity to be connected with God, to be connected with Christ. And maybe you're reading this and like, man, I just, I haven't had the same conviction that Paul has had. I've kind of lost my, my way. I've gotten off track. And maybe this morning what you need to do is you need to spend time just talking with God. And if you need to pray, I would love to pray with you. The elders would love to pray with you. You can pray where you're sitting. It, it doesn't matter. Maybe if you need to connect with God, do that. And this morning, I'll be honest, it is really hard to make the most of your opportunities and share what you do not have. And so maybe this morning, you've never accepted him into your heart. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. And if that's the case, the connect cards are around you. You can uh, write that down and, and we'd love to talk with you, pray with you. But do not miss the opportunities you have to speak the truth. Because here's, here's the deal. People around you need to know about Jesus. They need to know about the hope that you have. And it's up to you to be the one to share that with them. And so if you have a decision you need to make this morning, if you need to spend time in prayer, I hope that you do so as we stand and we sing. Before